Hello and welcome to another episode of A Composer's Journey. And in this episode, I want to talk about the Prix de Rome, which is essentially uh, the Roman prize is a translation of that in France, the Prix de Rome. So the Prix de Rome was a French scholarship uh, associated with the French Conservatoire and it was established in 1663. And it was mostly, at first it was mostly to do with artists, painters, architecture, that kind of thing. And eventually it became associated with music too. I think around 1800, 1803, they started awarding prizes for music. And the Prix de Rome for composers was a huge deal in France. If you were a member of the Conservatoire in Paris, then you really wanted to compete in the Prix de Rome because winning it pretty much guaranteed you a career as a successful opera composer. It pretty much guaranteed you success. Your music would be performed in concert halls. You'd probably receive commissions. So for French composers, for French members of the Conservatoire, winning this was a huge deal. As I say, for musicians, it was established around 1803, and it's now been abolished. It was abolished in 1968 after the French 68 riots. So let me describe to you, you know, how much of a big deal it was. So Hector Berlioz won it in 1830. You've all heard of Berlioz, Symphonie Fantastique and things. Um, Charles Gounod, Gounod, sorry, won it in 1839. Then Bizet won it in 1857. Massenet won it in 1863. Debussy won it in 1884. Charpentier in 1887. And Lily Boulanger in 1913. These are huge names in, in 19th century and 20th century music, in especially French music. And all these composers won it. So it really was a huge deal. Uh, it was pretty much the ultimate goal for composing students at the Paris Conservatoire. So... I've been looking into this a lot recently for a video I'm preparing. It's 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 actually this video that I'm preparing has taken a lot more work than usual because it's 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 a period of history that hasn't been studied as much as other periods, and um, there's a there's a lot of really fascinating material, and I just got to research it and then turn it into a good video. I'm really excited about it, but I just want to describe what competitors had to go through for the Prix de Rome, because it's kind of crazy to think about. So this is specifically around Nadia and Lily Boulanger's time. So around between 1908 and 1913, 1914, this is the kind of thing that composers would have to go through to win the Prix de Rome. So there was a first round to the competition. And in the first round, composers would have to write a chorus. They'd be given a text and they had to write a chorus. And that chorus needed to include a vocal fugue, that is a fugue for voices. So I think it would be for chorus and orchestra, although it would be, it would be played by piano for, um, for the performance, and it needed to include a vocal fugue. And the fugue would be in four parts, so that would be soprano, alto, tenor, bass for, for a typical chorus. And the subject of the fugue, by which I mean the melody of the fugue, would be provided by a member of the institute. So you'd be you'd be, you'd have melodies provided by great composers like Saint-Saëns. Saint-Saëns provided one of the melodies to, to one of the fugues that was uh, I think it was Nadia Boulanger when she was competing. She had to write a fugue to a melody by uh, by Saint-Saëns, which is crazy, and um, it was a really difficult one as well. But 
If you don't know what a fugue is, by the way, it's when you get a melody. Let's say ba 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 do 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 do. And then another voice would have to come in with that same melody, but starting on a different note. So the second voice would come in with ya do 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 do. And then eventually all four voices would be playing that melody, starting on different notes, coming in at different times. I think fugue is German for, I think it's chase. I hope I have that right. I think fugue is the German word for chase or, um, you know, each of the melodies are going after one another. They're chasing after one another, each starting on different notes. It's the same melody starting on different notes, coming in at different times. It's a really uh, cerebral composing technique. You have to use your brain a lot to um, to make all the different voices fit together properly while expressing the melody on different notes and in different parts. It's kind of like solving a Sudoku puzzle, but, but with music. <laughs> so anyway, um, they'd write this fugue in four parts for voices, and that was the first round, along with setting this text, which was given to them. And they'd have to write this fugue in four clefs as well, by which I mean the, the, tip, the traditional vocal clefs. They'd have to write in soprano clef, alto clef, tenor clef, and bass clef. So there's no treble clef there at all. They'd be writing the voices in soprano, alto, tenor, and bass clef. Um, and it's funny, soprano clef is pretty much retired now. Nobody uses it unless you study early music. Alto clef is mainly just used for violas, trombones, um, and tenor clef mainly for sort of cellos and trombones and things. And, and you know, other, other instruments sometimes jump into alto and tenor clef too. Soprano clef pretty much doesn't exist anymore. But traditionally, this is how composers would have to write. It, they'd write for voices in four different clefs. If you've ever had to do this in music school, um, and, and I have on occasion, you'll know that it takes a lot of brain power. It's an old-fashioned way of writing music, and it does take brain power because you're constantly having to think about switching to different clefs. Um, although I imagine if you were brought up this way your whole life, you'd find it a lot easier. I think it's—I personally think it's a good thing that we've now reduced music down to treble clef and bass clef. But back then, they were writing in four different clefs for voices. None of those treble clefs. So that's amazing that they were trained to do that. But as I say, that was how voices were written for back then. Four different clefs for the four different voices. And they had to write a fugue with those four different clefs. So anyway, if you pass that first round, then up to six students would be selected for the final round. And these students would have to write a cantata in three weeks on a prescribed text. So a cantata is, uh, it's sort of a narrative through, through there'd be arias and there'd be choruses typically, although not in this case, there wouldn't be choruses. It would normally be for three solo voices and orchestra. Um, but a cantata is sort of telling some kind of story through music. It's not quite an opera, but it's more kind of, it's somewhere between, um, well, it, it, it's somewhere between story and kind of just, just sung text. Anyway, uh, what's crazy is, that the finalists, when they're writing this cantata, all the finalists had to travel somewhere. They'd have to travel to a sort of villa in northern France. And the finalists would compose in seclusion. They would each work in their own studio in this kind of villa, and they wouldn't have a piano. They'd be composing in isolation with no piano, just a pencil and paper, and they would only meet for meals and recreation periods. And when they met, they'd just be meeting with the other finalists. So each composer would work in isolation, no piano, just a pencil and paper. And the jury 
the judges for this competition were generally highly prominent composers. So in 1913, which is the year that Lily Boulanger won, judges included Dubois, Faure, Vidor, Charpentier. And if you know your French music, you know that these names are all big deals. They're game changers in French music history, some more so than others. But still, these are all huge deals in French composing. So this was, you know, a very elite competition. And I know that, that elite is sometimes a sort of dirty word now in classical music. And, and but but it really required serious training. You couldn't you couldn't bullshit your way through this. You needed serious training to get through this competition. But you could train for it. You know, composers would prepare for several years to enter this competition. You would practice writing vocal fugues. Uh, and also the final cantata was typically of a similar format. It would be a very similar format each year. So the cantata for the final round would often start with a with a sunrise or a sunset scene. So, you know, you could practice writing orchestral textures for sunrise or sunset. And there'd normally be three characters, that, which, which lends itself to love triangle music. <laughs> there'd often be a love triangle. Um, the characters would enter one by one. There'd often be a duet, and then at the end it would end with a trio where all the characters would express their feelings. So you can practice writing this kind of music. And composers would often take texts from earlier years. They'd look at texts that were given for earlier years of the competition and practice setting those texts. And most of these cantatas also ended tragically. So there was a kind of format that you could practice. And as I say, composers would train for several years, and they would train with um, masters, either previous winners, you know, Vidor was was a teacher, I think Foray was a teacher as well, who would prepare students um, for this competition. So the exercises were designed to prove that competitors would write well for voice and orchestra. And that's why often competitors would go on to have a successful career in opera. But all of this, the reason I'm telling you all of this um, aside from the fact that I've been studying it and I'm excited to, to make a video uh, on something to do with this, uh, is that I'm reminded of something that Nadia Boulanger said. Nadia Boulanger, I haven't really introduced her, but she was this great, great music teacher based in Paris. She taught many of the top musicians of the 20th century at some point in their career. If you, if you, look, um, if you look at a list of Nadia Boulanger's former students, you're going to recognize a lot of names on that list. She really was, she taught the most extraordinary list of pupils. And she also competed in the Prix de Rome. She didn't win. Uh, her younger sister did win a few years later. But Nadia Boulanger, I remember reading something that she said, and I'm going to paraphrase it here because I couldn't find it. Um, I couldn't find the exact quote. But she said, you know, when you're training to be a doctor, when you're training in medical science, you have to train for six years or eight years or, or however many years before you are qualified to practice medicine. But musicians think they can just walk on and perform and, and, and or walk on and, you know, be a composer without having gone through that rigorous training. She says, why do musicians think they can just go on and, and, and compose or, or do whatever they want to do without the training? And for, her, for Nadia, this was arrogance. For Nadia Boulanger, this was real um, arrogance. She felt that you, if you wanted to be a true musician, you needed to go through that serious training. 
Now, obviously, there's a difference between a doctor and a musician because most of the time a musician doesn't have someone else's life in their hands. So, you know, that it's, it's a bit of a uh, facetious comparison in some ways. But her point is that she really believed that if you wanted to be um, taken seriously as a composer, you got to put in the work. You got to put in the training. You got to take your training period seriously, and I think that's something to think about. And it's it's a difficult one with modern day because I don't, you know, there's all these traditional elements of music. Learning to write a fugue, for example, um, which is perhaps much less useful if you want to be a modern composer, especially if you're looking at film and TV. You don't need to learn to write fugues. There are fugues in film and TV music. You know, there's a fugue in Jaws. Uh, Bernstein wrote a fugue in, in West Side Story and things. You know, there, you'll find fugues around. Um, uh, the Matrix has lots of instances of canon. But uh, it, these techniques are just tools. But I think more to the point, I'm not saying we all need to be traditional traditionalist elitists, but rather you got to put in the work. you got to take in your training seriously, whatever your training is. If you want to write amazing percussion music, then actually take the time to study percussion music, train yourself, hone those skills, take it seriously. Look at Hans Zimmer. You know, Hans Zimmer is no traditional composer, very successful in film music, and, and justifiably so. But he and his team are extraordinary producers. His team have mastered the art of recording, producing, creating these amazing modern soundscapes. They're, they're extraordinary producers. And the same can be said for, say, Phineas Eilish, um, Billie Eilish's brother, who's also her producer. He, he sort of you know writes the music and she sings, or they co-write the music, but he produces it. And he's obviously devoted his life to mastering his instrument, which is arguably logic. Um, I, by, by logic, I don't mean brain power i mean um i mean the software logic he's mastered logic he's mastered his talent which is music production so when i say you really need to put the work in i don't mean that you need to be writing fugues in four clefs to become uh, to become qualified but whatever you decide to focus on whether that's uh you know writing modern percussion music whether that's writing for synths whether that's writing for orchestra or just for piano you got to take it seriously. You got to do the study, put the work in. I think I think there's been this narrative, um, a kind of rock star narrative that came up in the last century that, you know, oh, there are all these great musicians who, who never learned a lick of music theory. And maybe that's true. But what they did do is master their guitar skills, master their style of instrument. They didn't just piss about and come out with a song uh, with no effort. You've got to put the work in. And I just found reading about the Prix de Rome really inspiring in that sense, that these here are composers who spent years putting the work in to compete in this competition in order to have a career. And I'm not saying life should be like that, but it inspires you to take this seriously. And the encouraging thing is that, you know, it's actually not that hard to put the work in. If you want to be really good at something, go ahead, study it. Try and enjoy doing the work and it'll make the whole process much more fun. But when you do put the work in, you'll find yourself having many more skills in your toolbox. You'll find yourself just being more competent. You'll find things easier. You'll understand how things work more. There's just so many benefits to it that I think it's 
it's it's it's a crazy thing not to do. It's it's just insane. So I really encourage you to go in with this fresh view this week with your music to being studious, really dedicating yourself as if you were a doctor studying medicine. Just really dedicate yourself to learning this because it'll make everything that you do easier in the long run. With that said, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you've been enjoying this podcast so far. I'm always up for hearing your questions. So if you join my email list, you'll be able to write to me with with your questions. And if you have a good question, I'll probably answer it on this podcast. So you'll find that email list on uh, insidethescores.com forward slash composers. And if you're really enjoying this podcast, then I'd love you to give it give it five stars. You don't have to if you don't want to, but uh, give it a good rating, leave a review, because uh, that all helps other people to find this podcast, which is great. Um, So anyway, thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.